Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My guest is Alan Underwood. We had a really good discussion. Alan is an entrepreneur and has been for many years. Started out with uh, pizza restaurants, grew that to multiple locations, moved into car dealerships, had a lot of success there over a long period of time, and then into real estate. So kind of bringing it full circle here to what we usually talk about in the DJE podcast. But Alan is, uh, is a, a multidimensional entrepreneur, not just doing the real estate stuff. And he's got a very interesting um, niche carved out which we'll get into in the episode, but basically uh, doing ADUs or additional dwelling units in San Diego, California. So really cool niche, very specific. And Alan was just um, a great guy and a great interviewee. So we kind of discussed his entire career and lessons learned along the way. Also a pilot. So we had a lot of, a lot of pilot talk about um, some uh, shared, shared interest there, but uh, a good entrepreneurial discussion. Um, very well-rounded, and then obviously some real estate peppered in too. So I think you're going to enjoy it. We'll get into that episode after a message from our sponsors. If you are enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thanks so much, guys. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by DJE Texas Management Group, a San Antonio, Texas-based real estate investment firm with a track record of transacting on several hundred million dollars of multifamily land and industrial deals throughout Texas. DJE's been in business for over a decade and is approaching 100 team members in San Antonio. To learn more about DJE, visit djetexas.com or the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode's also brought to you by apartmenteducators.com, a complete ecosystem for professionals to learn how to find, finance, and operate large multifamily properties for profit. You can get started with a free mini course and learn more at apartmenteducators.com or visit the link in the notes. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. How are you? I'm great, Devin. So awesome to be with you. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Uh, we're talking a little bit about in the green room about all kind of real estate stuff and pilot stuff, and I can't wait to unpack all of it here. Uh, but first, how about how about a little a little bio? You know, what's what's your story? How did you get into being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I guess I got into being an entrepreneur because I could never figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So um, that started when I was 21. I, I opened a pizza restaurant and that turned into four pizza restaurants that I owned and partnership and a fifth one. And then the franchise company uh, came in and bought us out because I had four of the five stores were the top four in the in the system. And so they bought us out. And on the day that that happened, my dad called me and says, Hey, I, I hear that you're unemployed now. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I guess, I guess I am. And he goes, well, I, I need somebody to manage a used car dealership for me. What do you think about doing that? I thought, well, you know, I'm at the time, I think I was 25 or something. I thought, well, that can't be too much different than pizza restaurants. So I went and did that and I learned two things really quickly. Uh, thing number one was I hated being an employee. And right away, I was like, wow, I got to find some way to not be an employee again. 
And the second thing was, is that cars make a lot more money than pizza. Yeah. So um, I spent the next couple of years learning everything I could about that business and then let my dad know that I was going to go out on my own and do my own thing. And so um, probably much to his chagrin and his partners, I opened Caddy Corner from, <laughs> from where I was managing a store for them and uh, grew that business a million dollars year over year, every year for the next 13 years. Um, and then, you know, a series of really life-changing events started unfolding for me in 2016. So uh, 2016, my youngest daughter was born and she was born with a serious birth defect uh, called gastroschisis, which is where their stomach doesn't all the way close. So she had a, a hole in her abdomen that allowed really all of her intestines and several other internal organs were outside of her body when she was born. Mm -hmm. um, so spent quite a while in the NICU getting her fixed. Thankfully, she's she's doing real good now. Two years after that, we found out that my mother-in-law had cancer and she passed away a week later. 13 months after that, my father-in-law died of cancer. And 13 months after that, uh, three years ago, um, on the 15th of this month, my dad had a massive stroke and passed away. And you know, those things really, quite honestly, just totally undid me. Um, I, I did not handle it well and ended up selling the car dealerships. And, you know, that um, was the lowest point of my life and also has led to some of the greatest things that have ever happened in my life. But a lot of those things I didn't see when I was at the lowest point. I just uh, actually, Devin, um, real candidly, you know, on the day that they buried my dad, I actually, I told my wife that if she would just throw me in the same grave with him, I'd be totally happy with that. That's where I was at that time. And so the last three years have been a complete rebuild for me. Man. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to, I don't even know what to say, right. That is a, that's a lot of things happening in a, in a short period of time. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. What was, what did you hang on to to get through that? Well, initially nothing. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, really, I got to the point where I recognized that if something didn't change, that my life was going to be pretty short. Um, I don't know that I ever wanted to take my own life but i could also understand how somebody could get there and i didn't feel like i was very far from that yep so uh the first step was i i reached out to a friend who i'd known had gone through a really serious midlife crisis and he'd actually gone to a 30-day mental health retreat uh like a private retreat thing where they did like 10 hours of every kind of therapy you can imagine um i looked into that um, and at the time I had written down on a note card that there were three miracles that I wanted God to give me and, uh, was praying for him every day. Uh, I was praying for purpose in my life. I was praying for, to be able to feel prosperous and just to feel happy. And, um, you know, it was actually not that long after that, where I didn't feel like a mental health retreat was the best option for me. Um, but I had the idea pop into my head that I should take a flying lesson. Uh, it was something I'd always wanted to do. And my grandfather had been in the Air Force. And, and so I asked my wife about it. And, you know, maybe 
for most people that wouldn't be that big an ask but my wife's uncle had been killed in a small plane crash so for me to come to her where she was knowing I was already having a hard time and and make that kind of request was a big deal and um to her credit she prayed about it and felt like um that was that I would be protected and so I went and did it and I'll never ever forget taking off for the first time in a in a little Cessna it was seven Lima pop out of Falcon field. And like from the minute that plane lifted off the runway, it felt like my problems just stayed down on the ground beneath me. And then the mental exertion of becoming a pilot, everything you had to learn about weather and avionics and mechanics and aerodynamics, all of that stuff pushed me out of a place where all I could see was what my suffering was. And, um, that, that's really what began the change right there. And so I threw myself into that. I, I, I did, uh, went from never having flown a plane to be being a commercially rated pilot in um, less than a year, uh, probably about eight months. So did it, I was at the airport like every day that just, that became like my thing. Yeah. And I realized in that journey that, um, what a blessing that had been for me. And then I started looking for ways that I could use that to bless the lives of other people. So as soon as I was commercially rated, I started volunteering for an aviation charity and spent a thousand hours last year volunteering for this aviation charity that does, it's called Angel Flight West. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm now the Arizona wing lead for Angel Flight West. And we do non-emergency medical flights for people in need. So, um, and that, that experience, you know, going from, you know, from the time I was 21 till about 40, that first 20 years of like my professional life, I, I had set a goal. I was going to be a millionaire by the time I was 40 and, you know, had all, but it was all, um, it was all stuff that I wanted. It was all checklist. Um, and like the polarity of my life, the desires that I have completely reversed through these experiences where, you know, I read the go-giver and that's how I want to live my life, where I want to show up in every situation with what can I give to people in this situation? How can I serve? How can I be of help? And literally every good thing in my life right now has come from an interaction where I was just seeking to serve someone else. I love it. There's so much in there. Th- thanks for sharing that. And thanks for your your transparency on that. I, I relate to a lot of it, at, uh, at least kind of the aviation I, I love it to get your commercial rating in eight months is you are living there <laughs> for sure that was ludicrous huh for sure yeah i love it it's been uh it's been one of the harder things i've done i think as an adult just feels like it's back in school and there is a whole lot of stuff to to learn and pass tests on and kind of get your mental you know mental bandwidth completely saturated um a lot yeah. of the time but the trade-off is pretty cool when you get to the other side of it so you ended up buying a plane right and is that the one you're using for the for the uh, charity stuff that you're doing yeah so i never do anything halfway so actually i started flying in july bought my first plane in july and um since i've bought three planes so the first two and i I have a hard time not turning something into a business too so i bought Two Cessna 172s. Uh, one of them I bought in St. Augustine, Florida, and flew it all the way across the country, and that was an adventure all in itself. Um, 
but yeah, I bought those two and then started renting those out to other student pilots. Um, that was an awesome experience because I learned how to maintain them and how to care for them. And um, also learned that either I wasn't doing it right or it just can't be done right, that there's not a lot of profit in renting airplanes. The, the maintenance expense associated with keeping them up and keeping them current was is pretty easy to outpace what you're earning. But it, it did open up an opportunity to meet a lot of pilots and, and have an impact in that way. And then, um, and then I bought, uh, actually went down close to you and went to the West Houston airport and bought a V-tail Bonanza. Cool. I was and, there uh, a couple of days ago. Yeah, I bought it with the intent of flipping it. I, I got a great deal on it. I bought it for about $60,000. And oh, wow. I thought, you know, I can sell this thing and make 10 or 20 grand when I get it back to Arizona. And, but the flight back, it was so fun to fly that I decided when I get back that it was time to sell the 172s. And so now we've got, uh, I think, just maybe 300 hours in that little bonanza now. So just past 700 hours. Flying. Cool. Yeah. Yes, man, you're up a lot. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, I want to talk, Alan, about real estate stuff. You know, you you guys are doing some different projects. So you've been an entrepreneur for a lot of your life. Um, at what point did this transition into real estate and what did that look like for you? Yeah, that was accidental. So I, I would love to say that there was some purpose there. But uh, what happened is after I sold the car dealerships, I had purchased uh, about five acres of land that I wanted to build another car dealership on. And now after selling the dealerships and not wanting to go back into that, I thought, okay, well, you know, I've done pizza restaurants, I've done commercial with the dealerships, maybe I'll build a shopping center there. So I went to a land attorney, a friend of mine and said, Hey, you know, Ralph, here's this property that I have. I'd like to build a shopping center. What do we need to do to make that happen? And he took a look at it and he came back and he said, you know, you don't, you don't want to build a shopping center. Hmm. And I said, well, no, that is actually what I want to do. Here's the pads where the restaurants would go. And here's where the buildings, he goes, well, Alan, 99% of the people that I'm working with right now are trying to get the zoning that you have on that property. And that zoning isn't commercial. That zoning is high density residential. What do you know about multifamily development? And I, I don't know anything. And he said, well, I think, I think you ought to learn. And so he gave me the phone number for a developer and I met with him and he took one look at the property and made me an offer of twice what I'd paid for it. And maybe in retrospect, that would have been a good deal at the time to take it. But I asked him, you know, Hey, what are you going to do with this once you buy it? And he said, well, I'm going to get it entitled. And I had no idea what entitled meant. And yeah. so I asked him to explain that. And I said, okay, so you gotta, you're gonna try and get permission to, to do this apartment complex. And he'd drawn on a napkin how he would design the apartment complex. And um, I said, okay, what's that gonna cost you? And he said, well, it'll take a couple of years, and you'll probably spend, you know, two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars getting that done. I said, okay, so you're going to be in this property 1.5. You're going to spend half a million dollars doing entitlement. What happens after that? He goes, well, after that, I sell it. And um, he goes, and I said, okay, what are you going to sell it for? And he says, about four to six million. And I thought, wait a minute, you're going to put half a million in and you're going to double or triple the value of the property? And he goes, yeah, that's that's what will happen. And I thought, well, that just sounds so easy. So yeah. 
I thought, well, I can do that. And so that's when I started. I went and hired an architect and started working with the attorney and um, started going to real estate meetups for the first time in my life. And uh, to that point, Devin, I didn't know that a 100-unit apartment complex from the ground up was a big deal. I just thought, hey, this is what people do. So uh, it was actually kind of eye-opening to go into these real estate meetups and tell somebody what you're working on. And you know, they want, well, what have you done in the past? How did you get to that point? And I thought, well, I haven't done anything in the past. And I just kind of accidentally stumbled into this. Through a who not how situation, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So we're uh, hopefully a few months away from entitlement now, and we'll actually hopefully realize a return on on that investment of time and money. So that that was the beginning, and um, I love people. I love relationships. Um, you know, one of my core values is relationships and making a difference. And so the um, world of real estate networking has been fun for me to explore and mm. Um, in doing that, I, I've made some great friendships and had some really good collaborations. And, you know, that's led to, I think I've purchased and flipped, I don't, I don't know how many millions of dollars worth of real estate this last year. And I'd never done that before. And that was all through different partnerships that I found in meetups. Um, and now with the fund that we're working on, that was, you know, through a different a network of GoBundance that that started. But um, learning about funds started a couple of years ago through one of the meetups that I went to and just being curious and then attended conferences on that. And, and that led to some opportunity. So, you know, in the long run, I think maybe I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I'm just kind of following the path. Um, but it's been a great ride so far. And, um, and now I can't imagine doing anything else. I was in San Diego walking properties with investors couple of weeks ago and just had an aha moment where I was like, man, I get to go to the beach and look at houses for yeah. work. This is great. <laughs> I love it. I've had those moments. I remember playing golf with a couple of buddies who happened to be investors too. They were buddies first and happened to be investors. But I was like, Hmm, this is, this is actually the highest and best use of my time right now. Like playing in golf on a Thursday morning with some investors, like, of all yeah. the things in my company that need to get done. And like, this is the one I need to be doing and just kind of being at peace with that going, man, it doesn't always line up like this, but when it does, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty cool. So what kind of stuff were you guys doing in California? You know, I, we're, we invest in Texas and do all kinds of things. Um, I was telling you earlier, California is like a, you know, a foreign uh, nation to me, as far as real estate goes, is it, is it stuff with ADUs? Is it multifamily? Is it entitlements? What are you guys doing out there? Yeah. So we're hundred percent in San Diego and love San Diego. It, is, it is with ADUs and really to simplify it for people. I just explained that what we're doing is we're converting single family homes into multifamily investment properties. Yep. They're anywhere in California, you can take a single family home right now and turn it into a triplex because of the pro ADU laws in, mm -hmm. in California mm -hmm. and Diego in particular is desperate for housing. Yep. Um, they're landlocked to the South by Mexico to the North by the military bases, obviously to the West is the Pacific and to the East you have the mountain ranges. So there aren't large tracts of land where somebody can come in and build an apartment complex. And so yeah the only way for them to attain the kind of growth that they need 
is through ADU development. So San Diego's taken California laws. For example, in California, you can do basically a junior ADU and an ADU on a property. In, in San Diego, any property, you can do one junior ADU and three ADUs. And if, if you're within the TPA or the transportation priority area, there's an unlimited number of ADUs you can do. So I can literally, if I buy a house with like a 10,000 square foot lot, for example, I can turn that into a 10 plex legally. And wow. now you've got a property and the cost, our real investment strategy is very simple. It's the difference between the cost of construction and the value of land in California or in San Diego. Yep. I can build for 250 to $300 a square foot and you can sell for 700 to $1,000 a square foot. So, which is good. You don't have to be very smart to make it work, which is good for me. That fits right to where I need to be. It's, it's real simple. It's real easy and it's quick. We can turn these around in 12 to 18 months. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, yeah, I didn't think about that in San Diego. I love San Diego. Um, and, and I remember flying in and it makes a lot of sense. It's totally landlocked. Uh, yeah. so yeah, you, you've got to, you've got to build on existing, existing stuff, which makes sense. So, um, is that what the fund that you alluded to is also doing or is the fund yeah. is a completely separate animal? Yeah, no. So my partner in San Diego, Christian has been personally doing this ADU play for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I met through GoBundance, we're in the same micro group, our pod. And um, I saw what he was doing. I've been learning about funds. I was helping a multifamily group at the time develop a fund. And um, so, yeah, he and I got together and got a chat. I thought, you know, Christian, this is a great opportunity for investors. It's fast. There's very little risk because we're buying a distressed property and basically following the Burr model. So we're going to burr it out, create a bunch of equity, so now you've re- removed the risk for the investor and now you're now you've just got time but you put a renter in the house and that pays for most of what your holding costs would be um so really within 60 days you've removed any risk from the investment it's like developing with security like my development in Arizona I mean if the city says no I've just spent 2 years and several hundred thousand dollars and I have to start over again sure San Diego, if I buy a property and remodel it and the city says, no, I've still got something that was worth more now than it was 60 days ago. And I can, if nothing else, return capital to the investors. Yep. Um, but since the laws are the way they are, I'm so pro ADU, you know, we're not acquiring properties unless we already know exactly what we can do with it. So there's, at least to my way of thinking, there's very little risk. And these properties are extremely attractive to investors because- anything that's new construction is exempt from rent controls for 15 years. No kidding. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. You just so market, rent, market rent escalations for 15 years. Yeah. So, which gives you a huge advantage in that marketplace. So okay. if we can bring to the market a hundred of these in the next five years, you know, we're creating tremendous investment opportunities for multifamily investors. Sure. Sure. I love it. So many nuances about California. Um, rent control being a, a big one. You know, I, I, yeah. I tell people, Hey, invest in landlord friendly States. I don't do California. I just don't know it, but something where you've got a rent control abatement for 15 years, um, definitely changes things. So I love, I love hearing it. 
how did you guys, if you don't mind Dylan, diving into the details of the fund, are you guys, is it open-ended, close-ended, 506C, you know, B, minimums? I mean, can we dive into all that stuff, how it's structured, yeah. what, a, what a partner in that fund can expect? Yeah, so our minimum investment is 50000 Um, You know, I guess if we're going to place a maximum on that, we don't really want somebody owning more than 75%. So I guess the maximum would be 3 million on this raise. Our first raise is $4 million. Mm -hmm. um, our long-term goal is $50 million raised. Um, and then we have a preferred return. So you've got on our A1 class investor, it's a 9% PREF. Nice. Then after return, after the return of capital, a 70-30 equity split up until they earn a 40% return on their investment. And then it goes to a 50-50 split. Um, and that's just infinite after that. And that's exclusive of tax benefits. And especially for anybody investing this year, um, we'll do a cost seg on all the properties we acquire this year. So we'll get a tax write-off for this year. Once we construct the ADUs next year, we'll do another cost seg. So we'll double down on that and then sell them, you know, probably beginning of 2025 somewhere. And so you'll get two years of, you know, some tax savings. And then um, we're estimating a 40, 42% return is what we're projecting. Our actual returns on the property that we're doing are a lot higher than that, but we would rather really under promise and, and over deliver. Yep. Um, my, the last part, the last property my partner did, and you'll love this. So it's, basically a $900,000 acquisition that he put $50,000 down on, spent another 50 to remodel it, and then pulled a home equity line of credit to construct the ADUs. And so that was, let's say, 300,000 in construction. So now he's in at 1.2, and it just appraised for 2.2. So he took $100,000 and created $800,000 in equity in 12 months. I love so, it. Man, that really speaks to the this uh supply demand dynamics here of, of san diego right there are right now 17 renters for every one available apartment in san diego so yeah. we had a, we did a meetup a couple of weeks ago and actually had a lady show up that had created these papers that she'd printed with basically a little bio of herself where she's like i saw that you were going to be talking about adus and i'm trying to find a place to live that I can afford. And she yep. was trying handing that out to everybody at the meeting in hopes that somebody would have an open ADU that she could move into. She came to an investment meeting for that. Yeah. 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 It's like any, any Avenue, right? <laughs> yeah. And she, she like, when she goes on walks, she'll look for an ADU in the backyard and knock on the door. Like that's how much this housing is needed in San Diego. Cause one of the things people don't think about in San Diego, which we really feel like secures our investment is you have every branch of the military in San Diego. Yeah. And not only is the military personnel needing housing for themselves and their families, but then you have all the contractors and vendors that service the military. So you have a really, really stable base, not to mention the universities that are there and the hospitals that are there and the tourism that comes into town. Uh, we just, we feel like San Diego is a really unique market in that way. I don't, I don't know of another market that, can boast that kind of stability and security. It feels like an anomaly in California, right? In a way that uh, maybe Austin is a bit of an anomaly in Texas, not that Austin and San Diego are similar, but 
San Diego is different than the rest, yeah. isn't it? You know, maybe it's the military, maybe it's, it's other uh, factors, but uh, I love San Diego. We're out there. I don't know. Year and a half ago is one of the best family vacations we had in a long time. It's fun. Yeah. That's uh, been one of the great things. And now I have to fly out there every couple of weeks. So, yeah. What, so are you taking the, um, are you taking the bonanza out there and how long does that take? Yeah, I do. So from the time I leave my house until I'm on the ground in San Diego is about three hours. Whereas if I were driving, it'd be six. Yep. So that includes all the pre-flight shutdown and everything. The actual flight is about two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. Love it. Plus you're getting to fly and log time. And- yeah. I get to fly. And and for me, that's meditation time, right? You get up in oh. the air and problems shrink, shrink, opportunities expand. And, you know, and I don't, my, my plane doesn't have any modern equipment so i don't have an autopilot i you know i I don't even have a gps so it's all visual flying and you throw a power flight or anything or you're literally just flying vfr yeah no i've got an ipad and you know that provides some points of reference but other than that you know you're picking out landmarks on the horizon and it just gives you a great chance to think and use your brain in a different way than you do the rest of the week yeah it sure does it sure does that's that's the best man that is the best um so you guys are are launching the fund and I guess sounds like this is an open-ended fund that you want to eventually take to, what was it? 50 million is the target kind of over time. Yeah. So this first one is closed. We'll close it at 4 million. And yeah. if we, if we over raise and, and push it to five, that would be okay, but we'll close this one at four. And really the reason for that is we, we set a really low bar because, you know, in the investing world, especially with funds, you know, I, I can look at our history where, Christian and I together have done over $80 million in real estate transactions. He manages 191 units in San Diego. He owns 31 units. We've raised over $10 million for other projects, but none of that seems to matter. You get in front of an investor. They just want to know how many times you've closed a fund. And so we just really need that check mark next to us that says that we've done this particular version of you know, even though we can point to our history and and say that we've done it. So yeah, the next one will probably be a 10 or $15 million fund. Um, and we'll keep it kind of at that as we move forward. Uh, we want to make sure that we get money in and raised in the first like six months, close that down. So all those early investors get the maximized return that they can get. And we're not sure. getting, you know, somebody that, you know, comes in at the 10th month and is getting the same type of return. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, how you kind of cycle out of the deals and how a later investor is impacted. But if you do your raise in a tight enough window, that kind of solves itself, right? Yeah. So we opened the raise about six weeks ago. We got a million dollars in the door. We've got about another two million committed. Um, And this weekend we're meeting with six or eight, well, actually probably 10 or 12 other investors that potentially could close the fund. I don't, I don't know if it will, you know, you always, people are always, yeah, I'm in, I'm in until it yeah. comes time to get paperwork in and then it I know. seems to drag out. But our goal will be to close this one before the end of the year. Um, and that, that will actually be perfect. It'll allow us to acquire the properties, get the first cost segregation studies done and return some good tax benefits to those guys that jumped in. And then we start working on the development process, which will take six to nine months. Um, and then we'll open the next fund right after that. Yeah. So, and by right after that, I mean, beginning of next year, we'll start raising for the next round as this one's being developed. 
You think you guys will do a, a open-ended fund for that second one or just a bigger closed fund? Yeah, I think we'll do an open-ended just with different tranches. So yeah. we'll just uh, make those tranches different classes. But, you know, from a cost perspective, it, it would be less expensive to create that open-ended one For time. sure. Yeah, the legal costs on this stuff, I mean... You've got to you got to do a, a, a multi million dollar fund. I mean, some of these legal costs are are high, um, and you've got to you know you got to go you got to go big on these things. Yeah. You don't want to be doing a bunch of small closed end funds with all these separate legal costs racking up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, well, it sounds like a, a very compelling, specific use case for the fund. I talked to a equity JV equity company yesterday, and they were raising a, you know, bigger, bigger firm, but they were raising a $200 million discretionary fund just because they're like, Hey, we think we're, we're talking in October, 2023 right now. Yeah. This group I was talking to yesterday was saying, we, you know, we think there's going to be some opportunity, but we're doing a $200 million fund that basically we can do whatever we want with debt, equity, you know, mm. stuff. And um, I just thought, okay, well, you know, you guys have been around long enough, got the connections to make that happen just to do a, Wide open yeah. fund, just raising 200 million <laughs> and then we'll figure out where to put it. Um, so, you know, these the, the funds run the whole spectrum of a $4 million fund, very specific outcome to $200 million open-ended discretionary fund, which is just interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 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 You've got to have some history to do that. For sure. For sure. But that's, you. I think you're approaching it the right way, doing a smaller one, closing it out. And then you get to do the best thing that you can do when you're raising capital, which is to say, we're full, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's uh, everybody wants to get into Studio 54 over here and uh, you're not invited. And and now <laughs> it's fun. It's so funny how that works. Man. So that's funny. Right. Take that's takes away. So you eat desire. Yeah. You, in a couple of months, you take it away and half those people you're talking to will, I guarantee you say, well, I'm first in on your next fund, right? That's just the way it works. It's too funny. Yeah. So. Yeah. We're looking forward to that problem, you know, and I, I and we recognize that there, there's an advantage and disadvantage to being so niche, right? There, yeah. I don't know of anybody else that's raising capital around this particular investment. Yeah. And maybe there are people that are doing it, but if there are, I'm not aware of it. Um, and there's very few people that actually understand there's, you know, much like your reaction, one of the, I guess, biggest hurdles that we often have is, well, why California? Nobody wants to invest in California. Right. Um, well, yeah, that's true. People that don't understand it certainly don't want to do it, but that would be true of anything. You know, I, I wouldn't invest in ranches in Texas either because I don't understand how that works. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's a good or a bad investment. It just means you need to gain some more knowledge. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the model that somebody's using outside of California, you're not just going to lay it over California and have it work. But the ADU thing, right. I feel like that's a pretty easy story to tell, right? It's, it's a different thing, you know, ADUs in Texas were like, what, what just go buy a hundred acres at yeah. 3000 an acre, build whatever you want. Right. It's like a completely different um, situation, but I, I feel like the ADU story is pretty easy to tell. Has that been what you guys have found when you're kind of out there talking to prospective investors about, about the fund or are people still kind of struggling to wrap their, their minds around that? I think when you talk to somebody from California, it's real easy to understand because it's common. Yep. Um, when I'm talking to somebody from Arizona or the Midwest, um, you have to explain why it is that you're doing it. 
And you really have to, that's why we say we're converting single family into multifamily. People tend to be able to understand that better. Um, especially when you wrap into there, the tax benefits, the lower construction costs, the high demand for housing, you know, you really have to tell the story. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I was reading an article the other day, it was talking about the Wright brothers that three years after they flew at Kitty Hawk, the New York Herald wrote an article that said either the Wright brothers are flyers or they're liars. Either, either they've flown or they haven't flown. So three years after they'd already proven that it was possible and after hundreds of people had witnessed them doing it, they'd done demonstration flights across, you know, really at that point, they'd done it in Paris. They, You know, there was no doubt that they could do it, but because it was so different, that it was easier just for people to disbelieve. And so I think anytime you're doing something different, no matter what it is, your first thing is, you know, people's natural disposition is to keep themselves safe and they perceive anything that's different as being dangerous. And so you have to be able to connect with something that they know and understand and then extend that into helping them understand the possibility. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I, I love that story about the Wright brothers. I share that with my kids. These guys were like publicly ridiculed in the newspaper after Kitty Hawk, yeah. after basically inventing flight for humanity. Yeah, they were told they were wasting their time, that they should yes. go back and get to work. Stop goofing off, right? After. I mean, I get yeah. it before your crackpots, you're never going to fly. But after they'd done it, still for some period, they were they're ridiculed. And I think that's a that's just a powerful commentary on humanity and how you need to approach something novel that you're doing or approach adversity. Like, man, if those guys were getting it after flying, um, that's just how people are. So I think it's also just a good indicator in life. And I have the same conversations with my kids. If there's a lot of people opposing what you're doing, there's a pretty good indication that you're headed the right direction. Right. You know, because we we tend as a people to be like crabs in a bucket, just trying to pull everybody back down into the bucket. That's right. Um, And yeah, I love that story too. In fact, the, another fun part about that is, like three months before they actually flew, the New York Times wrote an article that said it would be 10 million years before man invented a machine that could fly. <laughs> Not 10,000. We're going to go 10 million. They, they said 10 million years before they, they would do it. And uh-huh. before the end of the year, the article that article was printed, they were flying. So I love it. I love it. I love those examples. The internet has no uh, economic value, whatever it was in the 90s, you know, all these posts. Right. Um, Love to see it, man. Uh, well, this is this is great. Alan, I really appreciate getting to learn about you and your story and what you guys are up to. I love digging into I just I just love talking to other entrepreneurs. You've been an entrepreneur for a long time, but you um, you know, you're into something here in real estate that's that's new to me. So I appreciate you educating me and the other audience here on that. Um Got kind of two questions. One is, you know, wh- where do people connect with you? I'll get to that in a minute. But I guess last question for the podcast here is, you know, having amassed this life experience and being where you are now, what do you, what do you tell yourself um, at at twenty or somebody that's just get, getting started in in kind of life and business? Um, what do you what do you share with that person? That is that is a great question, and I appreciate it. And. Fortunately, that's kind of an easy question to answer for me right now, because I've got kids that are going through that now, you know, where they have different challenges or whatever. And 
And also, I think just looking back at myself three years ago, I had this aha moment. And then, you know, this when you're starting any new venture like this isn't for me in San Diego, you don't know. I mean, I know in my gut what the outcome is going to be, but there isn't any tangible evidence. There's no I can't point to a day where there's going to be a paycheck. And that can cause some fear and anxiety for people. It does for me. And the other day I was, I was actually struggling with that. I'm like, man, just like, I, I literally put everything I have into this and, you know, how does that going to work out? And I realized that three years ago when I was in the depths of depression, grieving the loss of my dad, I had no idea that a year later I would be flying airplanes. Had never was wasn't a thought at the time. I never could have foreseen that. I never could have foreseen that a year after that I would be joining GoBundance, which has been for me life changing in every way. Um, it's changed our, my family's financial trajectory from referrals that have come for the group. My kids are all working with life coaches and exponentially expanding in what they're capable of doing emotionally and mentally. Um, and I never would have seen that a year before that happened. And so I think no matter what you're at, where you're at, I think if you can adapt the real firm belief that, you know, you can say God or the universe, for me, it's God, that, that there are forces working in your favor, that no matter what's happening, it's going to get better and it's going to improve. Now it might be hard for a while and I sure hope people will reach out for help in those times. Right. Um, you know, and that's maybe something that I could have done better if I'm just giving advice is, you know, don't be afraid to reach out for help and ask people to help when you're having those hard times. But also, uh, you know, the first part of what I want people that we were talking about in the group in the green room was, you know, I want people to live a life motivated by hope. And I think if you can just hope for a brighter future, it can change your life. And, you know, that's the biggest thing. It's hard to do. It's easy to say. Um, and it's something that you have to work on. But that would be it is um, everything in life happens for you. Everything that happened that I thought was happening to me, you know, if if the dealership had continued to do well and my dad, I'd still be doing it. And I wouldn't have had the experience of flying. I wouldn't have met the people I'm meeting. I wouldn't be in GoBundance. I wouldn't be working from home where now I get to be with my family all day long instead of being in an office 15 hours a day. Right. Like everything has gotten better. It just, there was a short period of where it was really hard. So. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate your um, transparency and willingness, willingness to share uh, the highs and, and, and the lows too. So I appreciate that. Somebody listening wants to connect with you, learn about what you guys are doing. Where do we send them, Alan? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to find me. Um, it's the Alan Underwood on LinkedIn. Um, our, for the fund, you can go to mmtmgrp.com. So that's short for momentum group, mmtmgrp.com and connect with us there. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can scroll through the description and click through um, to Momentum Capital Group and, and check that out. Alan, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Wish you guys luck. Let's do it again in a year, kind of see where you are, maybe with the next fund or what else is going on. But thank you very much be, for joining today. That'd be fun, Devin. Thank you. Or come, I'll come fly with you before that. Let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. 
Thanks, Al. See you. To it. Bye. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.